NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. If approved, applications are typically funded the next business day or sooner. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. This is Pod Save the UK. I'm Coco Khan. And I'm Nish Kumar. And this week we're taking a closer look at the autumn statement. Less money, mo problems. We'll examine what the Chancellor's what. <laughs> not what I was expecting. <laughs> I wasn't ready for a, a Biggie Smalls reference. <laughs> we'll be examining uh, what the Chancellor's new plans tell us about the Tories' election strategy. We're here to dig into exactly what this is going to mean for your day to day life when the dust settles. Hi, Coco. How's your week been? It's been retro. What do you mean? Well, as you know, Nish, we live in very retro times. David Cameron's back. Big Brother is on the telly. People are wearing those absolutely horrible belts that are made out of discs that make you look like a gladiator. They're selling them on Urban Outfitters for £35. When I was wearing them from Dorothy Perkins for £3 in 2004. But anyway, um, so it's it's a very retro time. And to top it all off, last week I went to a gig. Yeah, you went to a gig. Yeah, I went to a live music concert. You went to see a band that I would say cleaves potentially more towards my taste of music than yours. I do listen to music of the guitar variety. Yeah, sure. But I haven't actually been to a gig with the guitars for a really long time. So it was Queens of the Stone Age and they are very much a guitar band. Very much a guitar band. A lot of circle pits going on. I was on the periphery of a circle pit at Kendrick Lamar and I thought, this is not appropriate, lads. This is not circle pit music. Is it just like a standard thing that happens at a stadium, like if it's Tom Jones circle pit? (laughs) (laughs) Listeners, write in. What's the least appropriate gig you've seen a circle pit form in? (laughs) How was your week? Long-term listeners of the podcast will know that I uh, injured myself earlier in the year playing five-a-side football when I sat on my hand and my ass broke my little finger. Oh, is this because you're a strong sitter? It's, yeah, yeah. actually, that is true. I, we, we've subsequently discussed that I sit down very aggressively. I like to sit quickly and hard. And unfortunately, <laughs> earlier in the year during a football match, I sat quickly and hard on my finger and broke it. So That's quite I, hard, mate. Yeah, too hard, <laughs> arguably. That was too, like, I, I, have, I have been told that people are using the phrase full niche to describe sitting aggressively. <laughs> And let me tell you, I full-nished my own finger into being broken. But uh, I returned to the football pitch yesterday for the first time in three months. Oh, wow. How was it? I feel like my body is on fire. Okay. My whole body aches and I feel every single one of my 38 years. So you wouldn't say that it felt like... You know, when you see a, a duck take to water, you yeah. can say it was like that. It felt like a peaking duck taken to water, <laughs> a fully dead and cooked duck being chucked in a lake. Well, you know, I'm <laughs> sorry, I just I can't think about this. This crispy, wet duck. Yeah, yeah. crispy, wet duck is a perfect description <laughs> for me sport. doing sport. <laughs> Okay, so what do we have coming up, Nish? We've got two absolutely brilliant guests to talk us through uh, the autumn statement. We've got Helen Barnard from the Trussell Trust to talk us through the implications for people's day-to-day lives. And Kieran Stacey from The Guardian is going to be joining us to talk about the political ramifications for Rishi Sunak of what gets announced by Jeremy Hunt today. Okay, so as we're recording this, there's been a big update uh, on the Israel-Gaza crisis. So we're recording on Wednesday morning and early this morning, UK time, the Israeli government and Hamas agreed to a ceasefire. Now, we should make clear what the terms of this are as it stands. It's being referred to as a humanitarian truce and the deal was brokered by the Qatari government. And by the time you're listening to this, it should already be underway. And we're hearing that it's set to last for at least four days. 
In that time, Hamas will release at least 12 hostages a day, while Israel will release at least 150 Palestinian prisoners who are women and children currently being held in its jails. The break in fighting will also allow more humanitarian aid to enter Gaza. That is desperately, desperately needed humanitarian aid. But after that four-day period, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the war will resume, and I quote, until we achieve all our goals. Given the current situation, any pause in fighting is obviously to be welcomed. That has to be, you know, the uh, releasing hostages and releasing women and children from jails, that is a very welcome step. You know, I want a ceasefire. I want to see a peace process begin, uh, not just uh, a pause in the fighting. But I like to think that the international work that has gone in in telling our political leaders that this is what we want has inched this forward, has created a situation where there are enough international voices pushing towards this. Maybe there's some, some silver lining and, of course, a reminder that we mustn't stop. So this is a story that is obviously moving all the time. Our friends at Pod Save the World are watching it closely too. I mean, we always recommend them. New episodes of that uh, every Wednesday. Meanwhile, here in the UK, the COVID inquiry continues to rumble along. And this week, we've been hearing new, horrifying, if not altogether surprising revelations about what the government was up to at the peak of the pandemic. For all of Boris Johnson's talk of being... And I quote, led by the science, he appeared to have a hard time actually understanding the science. His chief scientific advisor, Sir Patrick Vallance, revealed what many of us were thinking, recording in his diary that the Prime Minister was clearly bamboozled. Here he is explaining his view of the PM. Well, I I think I'm right in saying that the Prime Minister at the time gave up science when he was 15. And I think he'd be the first to admit it wasn't his forte and that he did struggle with some of the concepts and we did need to repeat them often. Apparently Johnson found it, and I quote, a real struggle, uh, as Balance put it, though he did say that the UK Prime Minister wasn't necessarily alone in this. A meeting that sticks in my mind was with fellow science advisors from across Europe when one of them, and I won't say which country, uh, declared that the leader of that country had enormous problems with exponential curves and the entire phone call burst into laughter because it was true in every country. Laughter? That's not the that's that feels like the the, the wrong expression. Well, I guess what it reveals is that the people who were in charge of making the decisions that were supposed to protect us were as confused and as in the dark as the rest of us. It's kind of a terrifying insight into how our leaders were operating at the time. But I mean, you know, if you were being generous, you'd say, okay, they're human beings. This was a a completely new virus. I mean, obviously we know from the preparedness section of the COVID inquiry that, you know, they could have been more up to date and there were many opportunities um, to be more informed. But nonetheless, you know, if you were being kind, you would say, okay, it was a confusing time. But to laugh, I think that reveals something. I feel like that is, um, there's an honesty there about how casually they took it all. Yeah. I do understand that everybody involved is a human being, but at the same time, don't apply for the job of Prime Minister if you don't want to govern a country through a crisis, because that is part of the job description. We've been warned for a huge amount of time that we were sort of essentially due a pandemic like the one that we lived through. So according to uh, Sir Patrick Vallance, he recorded in his diary that Johnson would sometimes pretend to misunderstand something he was told in order to see if an alternative might be true instead. I say this is somebody who, and this will shock, shock absolutely no one, was a school and university debater. This is debating society shit. Oh, right. That, you know, it's uh, adopting a position... Uh, uh, that opposes your own view to try and prove the kind of flexibility of your intellectual capabilities. But that's all well and good when what you're doing is debating hypothetical issues Mm. that might arise. But it's not a way to run a country. Another revelation had to do with the current Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. Uh, Valence wrote, DC says Rishi thinks just let people die. That's okay." DC there, of course, referring to Boris Johnson's chief advisor, Dominic Cummings. Cummings was talking about what he understood to be Sunak's views on COVID-19. Just let people die. That's okay." And I think this revelation will be a reminder to everyone that he was not a bit player in the pandemic. He was front and centre. He had the ear of everyone uh, who was important and he made some key decisions himself. And as with everything that Dominic Cummings says, it needs to be taken with 
not just a pinch of salt, but a metric ton of salt. So we, th- th- at the very least, we should engage with it with some uh, scepticism because Cummings was trying to rewrite history as it was happening, essentially. Mm, mm-hmm. But yeah, it doesn't, it really does not look great for Sunak. And again, Sunak is desperately trying to distance himself yeah. from an administration that he was arguably the second most powerful person in, possibly the third most powerful person after Johnson and Cummings, mm. but certainly a central figure as the Chancellor. And I think part of his re-election campaign is going to somehow hinge on him not having anything to do with Johnson and Truss. I, I think he it's easier for him to distance himself from Liz Truss, but I think it's very difficult for him to distance himself from Boris Johnson. So let me ask you a question, because we've spoken about inquiries before, and as you know, I am quite cynical about them. I think we go through this circus and nothing really happens, but perhaps some sort of electoral consequence m- might be something that comes out of this. I guess I just wanted to ask you, how are you feeling about this inquiry? Do you feel there's accountability um, occurring? I mean, I think that there are things happening that are instructive for how the state and the government should operate in a crisis. And I think that there are specific technical things that we're learning that will help us hopefully reshape the way our systems operate that would be for the benefit of the British people. The main thing that I hope this does in the short term is absolutely 100% end Boris Johnson's political career. I just have this fear with Johnson that he's never going to go away. Actually, I read a piece in the in the Telegraph. It was a like a kind of comment piece where they were saying that essentially this whole inquiry is just to throw Boris Johnson under the bus and that all the bad decisions were made by these unelected scientists yeah. and that Boris Johnson was right to question everything and was intuitive to ask those questions because he's human. And I did think that actually it is a salient point to say that the, the scientists are uh, the chief medical officers, whoever it might be, are not elected officials so it does need to come down to politicians but that balance that delicate balance it is hard to achieve and you just feel that someone like Johnson he was just covering his own back rather than actually trying to achieve walk this tightrope this difficult situation yeah I mean listen there are going to be more revelations like this I, I appreciate that for some people it is very difficult to um engage with because it's you know, a collective trauma that we all very recently went through. Um, But I do still believe in the value of these kind of public inquiries. Um, And uh, and I'm especially appreciative of all the work that's going into it by all of the people involved in in the inquiry right now. Uh, And I think it's especially important because it's so fresh in everyone's collective memory that there is some record and Mm. some attempt to understand what we all live through and why we all live through it. And for that, I think there is huge value in this inquiry. I I don't know if it's going to lead to anything concrete, but I think just as a living record of the failures that happened in the period between sort of 2020 and 2021, I think it, it still is serving an essential purpose. Well, look, there's certainly going to be more revelations this week. Sir Patrick Balance, Sir Chris Whitty, uh, Jonathan Van Tam. Do all these names ring a bell? Throwback time. I could smell <laughs> banana bread coming from my kitchen <laughs> and feel the panic that we were all going to die of plague as you remind me of those names. Although, I don't want to hear from Tiger King. It's the one name I enjoy. <laughs> one throwback name I don't need. <laughs> Yes, the inquiry will also cover whether Tiger King was actually any good and was normal people actually that hot. Pod Save the UK is brought to you by Keriuma. Keriuma has been our go-to sneaker brand for a while now, or should I say go-to trainer brand for a while now. That's how we do it in the United Kingdom, America. (laughs) We train, we don't sneak. And we train in consciously sourced materials, in comfortable sneakers that go with everything. Oh, I said sneakers. Yeah. I don't know why you keep saying sneakers. I don't know. We, we actually have Kerryuma trainers. We and do. They're very comfortable. They're very stylish. We love them very much. Um, and Crooked has actually collaborated with them to create No Steps Back sneakers. So they already did that. But now there's a second limited edition collaboration with Crooked, the Love It or Leave It trainer. Again, trainer. <laughs> That's hard, what we're going to call them. <laughs> 
So these trainers have a colourful design with lots of Easter eggs, uh, plus a portion of the proceeds from every pair sold is donated to Vote Save America's Every Last Vote Fund. I should also mention that I have a pair of Kerry Umas and they are always comfortable and uh, I'm going to wear my heels later. I know what to pack in my bag. (laughs) Are you going to start packing your Kerry Umas on a night out? Oh, yeah. The ethical night out handbag (laughs) shoe. If you've got a massive bag, and I do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, look, the first Crooked Kerry Uber collab sold out super fast. So if you want a pair for yourself or for the John Lovett fan in your life, make sure to snag one now. They make the perfect gift for the holiday season. They also have free returns. So head to crooked.com forward slash store to check them out. We're recording this just moments after Chancellor Jeremy Hunt announced a series of pre-election giveaways in his autumn statement. With inflation slowing down, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has been signalling that he's ready to, quote, begin the next phase. And the Chancellor followed up with what was meant to be a real crowd pleaser. The biggest package of tax cuts to be implemented since the 1980s. An autumn statement for a country that has turned a corner. Tax cuts. Jeremy Hunt promising tax cuts all round and pints all round too for some reason. So as well as confirming our Brexit pubs guarantee, which means the duty on a pint is always lower than in the shops, I have decided to freeze all alcohol duty until August the 1st next year. That means no increase in duty on beer, cider, wine or spirits. At a time when taxes are at a 70-year high, the words tax cuts may be music to many people's ears. But of course, it's never all that simple. Our public services are looking pretty rickety, with more than 7 million people on hospital waiting lists, schools underfunded and some 3 million using food banks. Here to help us understand what the autumn statement is really about is The Guardian's political correspondent, Kieran Stacey. Um, Kieran, thank you so much for joining us on what I imagine is a hectic hectic day um it is Um, but look so let's let's cut to the quick just help us out here what are the key headlines coming off the off the autumn statement well the key announcements are as you were mentioning the big tax cuts the bigger than expected cut in national insurance which is going to cost quite a bit of money actually it's going to cost about 10 billion pounds we also saw a bit of a squeeze on benefits and there's cuts in taxes for self-employed people but really i think the underlying theme of this is the stuff that jeremy hunt didn't say that was there in the forecast and that's very low growth and the fact that he has chosen to use all of the money that the OBR said that he had beyond what we thought he had, he's chosen to use almost all of that on tax cuts rather than spending increases, which means that to meet these forecasts, it would need the next government, whichever party it is, to make cuts of about 4% every year to unprotected departments. That's basically a second round of austerity coming after this election if these forecasts are going to be met. Wow. So do you think he's setting Labour up for this horrible position where if they are to take government, they will have to do this and therefore lose the confidence of the electorate? Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you want one takeaway from this autumn statement for me, it was that Jeremy Hunt doesn't expect to win the next election. This is an almost undeliverable package. This looks like, to me, just a giant trap for Labour. Um, And it will be incredibly difficult if Rachel Reeves is going to be the next Chancellor for her to figure out well, what on earth do I do with this? If these are the forecasts, you know, the NHS falls over, local government, several local authorities will go bust, um, you know, waiting lists will get worse and worse and worse. But at the same time, Labour are absolutely desperate not to, uh, you know, undo any of the tax cuts or, or to offer spending increases beyond, you know, what's already on the table. So it's quite a difficult position for her to be in. So you don't see this as I mean, there's a lot of reporting happening now about how this is the sort of starting gun for an earlier than anticipated election next year. Um, uh, The Guardian's Adithya Chakraborty was uh, drawing a comparison between the 2% national insurance cut and Nigel Lawson cutting 2% of the basic rate of tax before the 87 election. Yeah, that was a very smart analogy, yeah. But you don't think, you, you don't even think that it's a question of them setting up the election. It's a question of them setting up for the next period in opposition, effectively. (laughs) Well, to a certain extent, but it's also a way for them to frame the next election, which they're hoping will be Tory tax cuts versus Labour spending increases. 
Well, I did want to ask you just about a few of the specific policies. Just for our listeners, you know, a big headline was about the changes to the national insurance rate. What is that about? <laughs> and that's a way of cutting income tax without cutting income tax. The idea of national insurance is it's the contribution that you make towards benefits such as pensions later in life. Um, and you, you, you have to make those contributions for a certain period to get your full pension allowance uh, at the end of it. But the way it actually works is it's an income tax in all but name and it's paid by people mainly on payrolls. It's also paid a bit by um, self-employed people. It's a, a slightly less expensive way to cut lots and lots of people's taxes. Basically, it'll make up to about a thousand pounds a year of difference for, for some people. So it will make a major impact. The problem that you know the Tories have got is that more people are going to be paying more tax because of what we call fiscal drag, which is uh, Jeremy Hunt's uh, habit and previous chancellor's habit of keeping the thresholds where they are in cash terms, mm -hmm. which means that inflation means your wages go up and therefore you end up paying more tax because they haven't adjusted the threshold at which you start paying those tax rates. That is a huge, huge money spinner for the Treasury. Not many people realize it's going on. But it's such a massive deal that just because of that, or almost entirely because of that, our overall tax as a percentage of GDP is forecast to be higher than ever before by the end of this five-year period. So yes, national insurance contributions have been cut. Overall taxes are going up. And I think the worry for the Tories will be that people feel the latter, not the former. What you've described there sounds like the literal opposite of tax cuts, but it's just done yeah. by stealth. It's a tax increase by stealthier means, essentially. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a very effective thing to do because people don't realise you're raising taxes if, if what you're saying is, well, we're freezing the thresholds. But that is what you're doing. It's a massive tax hike. So who would you compare this budget to in terms of previous chancellors? You know, there was lots of mentions of 2010. Is this George Osborne's doing? It feels very Osborne-like to me. Um, clever tax cuts that put Labour in a bind coupled with the prospect of swinging spending cuts to come. It, it, it feels very Osborne-like. Obviously, it's not anything like Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng. Um, but yeah, this is quite a strategic autumn statement, I would say, quite a politically clever one. Just expand on that, the sort of politics of it, because uh, he's been very keen, uh, Rishi Sunak, to distance himself from his two immediate predecessors for any number of very understandable reasons. But with bringing Cameron back into the cabinet and the consistent, as Coco said, referencing of 2010 specifically as a year, it, when only a year ago, Rishi Sunak was sort of trashing the record of the last 13 years of government, essentially trying to portray himself as the insurgent change candidate in the upcoming election. He now seems to have backtracked. Am I reading that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I, mean, I was talking to a Tory candidate last night who said, look, there's three ways you go into an election. It's either a change election, it's a steady issue goes election, or it's a be scared of the other guys election. Um, we've already had a change election. That was back mm -hmm. at Tory conference all of a few weeks ago. <laughs> now we're trying a steady as she goes election. And presumably as we get towards it, it'll be much more about the dangers of Labour. But their strategy is just veering wildly all over the place. It was people within number 10 who said that this is going to be a change election, you have to be a change prime minister. So they tried it for a bit, realised it didn't work and decided to bring David Cameron back. Is this a, an austerity 3.0, 4.0 budget or is this a genuinely a, a, a generous uh, nation building budget? Given the forecasts he had, this was a generous budget. So he was told by the OBR there was £27 billion worth of headroom to be able to hit his overall target, which is to have debt falling as a proportion of GDP at the end of the five-year period. So £27 billion basically to play with. He's used three quarters of that um, and he's used it mainly on tax cuts. So to that extent, he's been generous. He hasn't said, well, we'll just pay off the debt faster. And you asked earlier about George Osborne, maybe that's what George Osborne would have done, but they've not, they've not done that. Um, but it's not generous in terms of public spending. Mm, and as I was mm -hmm. saying earlier, 4%, 4.1% average real term spending cuts every year for the next five years. I mean, that can't be called generous by any measure. And Kieran, do you think that they've managed to by just repeatedly saying the word growth over and over again, <laughs> distract all of us from the fact that the OBR has actually downgraded its forecasts for the UK's economic growth uh, for the next, I think, five years. 
it's a grow, growth budget with lower growth. Yeah. Right? That's, that's quite a rhetorical <laughs> trick to pull off, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think we get close to 2% growth in the OBR forecast now for three years. I mean, it's basically no growth in the economy. Inflation is still way above the 2% uh, target, even though it's come down um, a huge amount. So overall, it's not a healthy economic outlook. Gosh, wow. Um, Kieran, Sorry, uh, was that too much doom and gloom? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not going to lie, Kieran. Yeah, it, it, was. it was. But listen, Kieran, we get cheaper pints soon, I hear. So cheaper pints. Cheaper yeah, more pints. expensive rolling tobacco. Though, yeah. so anybody, sorry about that. There was there was just a great, when you finished, there was just a, both Coke on at the same time went, oh. Yeah. Just, just the silence in the silence. room. <laughs> <laughs> we took a second to absorb, to absorb what you said. Kim, thank you so much for your time. Um, that was uh, that was great. B- uh, b- both fundamentally depressing, but also extremely good. <laughs> yeah, um, I had a fun time getting sad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Political storytelling in the run up to an election is all fun and games, but we also want to understand what does this autumn statement mean for the UK's poorest citizens. Our next guest is Helen Barnard. Director of Policy, Research and Impact at the Trussell Trust. Helen, we just spoke to uh, political correspondent Kieran Stacey, who helped demystify the politics behind the autumn statement and also talked us through this idea of fiscal drag, which means that despite the headlines about tax cuts, more people are actually going to be pushed into paying income tax for the first time. And you're very much at the front lines of of all of this. Uh, Some of the stats are sort of very upsetting in their own way. Between April and September of this year, the Trussell Trust provided 1.5 million emergency food parcels to people using its food banks. That was the highest number ever and a 16% increase from the year before. We heard the Chancellor almost talk about a country that I'm not sure a lot of us recognise from the day-to-day realities of what's going on for people. On the ground, what are people coming into food banks at the moment saying about their current financial situation? Well, it is really, really bleak, if I'm honest. So, as you said, the first six months of this year was our worst ever, but last year was our worst ever. So last year, the level of need had gone up by 37% on the previous year. So what we've seen is actually a longer term trend over the last five to 10 years of just ever increasing destitution, if I'm honest, you know, the most extreme form of poverty. Mm. So people who cannot afford to eat properly, to pay their bills. We're seeing people who are missing a hospital appointment because they can't afford the bus fare to get there. Mm. There's one woman who was getting up at two in the morning to do the washing because the electricity is slightly cheaper. There have been literally millions of people who have been unplugging their fridge and freezer because they can't afford to keep them on. So people are facing really severe hardship And it just keeps getting tougher. So we are bracing for our worst winter ever. And I think for the first time that I've heard, food banks are saying they feel like they're reaching breaking point, that the need is just so great. It's far beyond what any charity could try and deal with. We were in the room with you when you were listening to the autumn statement. Um, I heard you react to a couple of things that you thought might be good, might be beneficial. What jumped out to you? So our biggest fear coming into this, there had been a lot of talk about whether benefits would be raised in line with inflation. So the normal thing is each April benefits go up and they go up by whatever inflation was in September the previous year. That's been the case for a long time. For the last couple of years at least, there's been really strong indications they might not do that. They might freeze them completely or uprate them by a lower amount. Now, that's an effective cut to people's incomes. And that was really scary. The idea you would look out on the level of hardship and actually reduce the amount of money, that was terrifying. Mm. But they didn't do that. They pulled back. They have uprated. So all benefits, universal credit and so on, they'll go up in April in the way they're supposed to. It isn't going to take away the hunger, the hardship we're seeing. It means it's not going to get worse. So that was great. We were so relieved. The other big thing, though, which is really is an active positive, as it were. So local housing allowance, it's basically housing benefit that if you're in the private rented sector and you're on a low income, it helps you pay your rent. The amount was frozen back in 2020. Now, everyone will know quite how much rents have gone up by in the last Mm. few years. And so that local housing allowance 
it was just far below what most people's rents were. And people were coming to food banks partly because they were using the food budget to try and pay the rent. And it was one of the biggest things that was forcing up homelessness. So a lot of the homelessness charities are seeing more and more people. And that gap between housing benefit, local housing allowance and rents was one of the biggest drivers. Now, the thing the government did announce today is that they are relinking it with rents. It will again cover the bottom 30% of rents. Now, that, that's a big thing. It's going to help hold back the rise in homelessness. Mm. It should help food banks because people will have to spend a bit less on the food budget on the rent. I know we've discussed this idea of the tax cuts being slightly smoke and mirrors because of this fiscal drag, but the headlines will inevitably, or certainly the positive headlines will inevitably focus on tax cuts. But I noticed that you didn't really foreground them in your list of things that you thought were positive about the autism. Do you you see the tax cuts as having a positive impact for people on lower incomes in this country? Not massively for most of them. I mean, essentially, we have a progressive tax system, which means that people on higher incomes pay more taxes, which means when you cut taxes, by and large, it's people on higher incomes who see greater gains from those cuts. Yeah. Now, that's especially the case for income tax, but it's also the case, you know, national insurance. So the group that are going to see the most benefit from that are kind of middle earners. Right. So actually, if you really want to help people on low incomes in and out of work, universal credit is the Mm -hmm. tool you use. If you want to funnel more money to that group, you do it through universal credit, not through any of the tax cuts. So I wanted to talk to you about something that they they spoke about in today's autumn statement. I'll just be completely honest, it really scared me. Jeremy Hunt talked about essentially putting people on disability benefits into a mandatory uh, job-seeking scheme. Uh, Some of my relatives are uh, not not well and are out of work and I can quite literally visualise them being put into this classroom or whatever the space is, being whatever patronised and uh, I don't know, I don't even know if physically they can then do that. They're out of work because they're not well. I found it dystopian and scary. And one, do you think it can happen? And two, if it did happen, would it work? So there has been something really odd in the last few days. So last week, the government kind of pre-announced a bit of this, which they do sometimes, called the Back to Work Plan, which is all about how to get more disabled people back into work. And it's worth saying loads of disabled people would really like to work yeah. if right, barriers were removed. So I've got no problem with the aspiration. Um And they have actually, there is quite a lot that's really good about what they're doing. So they are putting really serious money into employment support and good employment support schemes. They're going to put more money into talking therapies. You know, we all know how hard it is to get mental health support Mm. right now. So that's all good. The trouble is they've kind of wrapped up this positive stuff in really frightening rhetoric. Yeah. uh, Talking about sanctions, talking about uh, forcing people who are not well enough to work to get out there. Now, that has an effect in itself, actually. This rhetoric has an effect of ramping up fear and actually, I think, making it less likely that disabled people will choose to engage with the good support that's out there Mm. because they are so scared they're going to get put into this regime. We're saying about seven in ten people coming to food banks are disabled. There is incredibly high destitution among disabled people. Mm. This could make it worse. What you've done for us, and we're so appreciative of your time, is give a kind of reasoned assessment from your perspective about what the autumn statement means and you have said positive things but the sense with the positive things is they might just be sticking plasters you've actually written a book on how we can end poverty once and for all in britain and i just want to ask you about structural stuff and structural changes big picture changes that we can make to this country, what would it take to break the disconnect between the UK being one of the richest countries in the world and also being a place where we're seeing spiralling homelessness, spiralling food bank usage, food bank usage by people who already have jobs? What I'm asking really here is, how can we rebuild the connection between the UK's national wealth and the wealth of the people who actually live in the UK? Yes, you're right. It does feel sometimes you have a day like today and we focus in on the kind of tweaks to the existing systems, don't Mm. we? Yeah. And we don't zoom out to what are the big things we could do that would actually make a step change in people's lives. So I think, so when I wrote this book, it was out last year and it was tied in with the anniversary of the beverage report. So that kind of set up all of our modern institutions, really. 
And that came after the Second World War, which I think is interesting because it was kind of this big national trauma. Mm. And then you emerged out and that gave a kind of impetus to say, you know, the purpose of victory is to create a better world to live in. And I was writing this during the pandemic. And it really felt to me as if, you know, we're going through this national trauma. When we emerge, can we rebuild a better world the way that Beveridge and... So were you consciously trying to update? So again, we should just contextualise for international listeners, and I suspect some British listeners as well. The Beveridge Report was published in November 1942, and it takes its name from William Beveridge, who was the social economist who kind of headed up the report. And it was, as you say, about how to rebuild the country coming out of, uh, you know, a... I mean, the similarities feel overwhelming at points, coming out of the aftermath of a global financial crisis and coming out of uh, the national crisis of the Second World War. And it's essentially the kind of instigation point for conversations that culminate in the welfare state and the National Health Service Mm. in the 1945 Labour administration. And were you consciously trying to do something on what I guess was was the 80th anniversary of the report's publication that was, this is a modern... 21st century version of that report. Yeah, so I went into it thinking, are these institutions that were created, are they still fit for purpose? Right. You know, 80 years later. Um, And one thing, they've actually lasted amazingly well. If you go back about, you know, even within years of them being set up, people were saying it can't last, it can't last, this is going to, people always thought. And actually, you know, they've been incredibly durable. But the conclusion I came to was that they are still a really good basis, but they are not fit for the modern world. So if you kind of think about what they were set up to do, so you've got the National Health Service, but if you think about, you know, health challenges today are about long-term health conditions, it's about mental health, Mm. it's about back problems, it's about diabetes. The health service was never really created to deal with that or to do preventative work. And the same is true of kind of education in some ways. So the education system was basically, can we teach all the kids to read so they can go and work in factories? It wasn't, you know, it was never designed to have, be able to let adults retrain four times over their lifetimes because technology is changing and now you have to do this thing with AI. Yeah. And then you take kind of social, social services, employment support. And it was all about a kind of, it was like a mass dating agency. So you've got all these workers and all these factories and we need to put them together really efficiently. But the problem we face now is firstly, poor quality employment. So we can match you up with a job, but as you were saying, you're still going to be in poverty. It's not very good at saying, how do we get employers to design better jobs? So all of these services, I think, need to be refreshed to meet the modern problems. So on a a kind of closing note are there things listeners who care about this as much as we do i mean look i donate to the trussell trust of course i always of course we're we're all we're big trussell trust donators (laughs) (laughs) probably Um, the least surprising thing about the two hosts of this podcast but but, no but i like i I resent that i donate to i no offense helen you're great but i don't think i don't think your organization should exist i think it's outrageous you're trying to work yourselves into obsolescence, essentially. Oh, God, right? yeah, no, it's like the headline of our strategy is we don't want to have to exist. I mean, honestly, Absolutely. when I see a politician doing a photo op outside a food bank, I want to scream, you know, in... in ah, anyway, I'm getting angry. But outside of charitable things, what are political things our listeners can be doing to kind of nudge this up the agenda? So I think for me, the biggest thing, so... We've been talking today about the fact that social security, even with today's boosts, it is failing in its most basic duty of protecting people from extreme hardship. The reason for that is because within social security, there has never been a connection between how benefits are set and the actual cost of essentials. That's never existed under any government. Mm. And what that means is every year we have this fight about where do you set benefits and how high should they be? but never with any kind of direct reference to what do people need to buy. So what we've been, so Trussell Trust, with with loads of other charities now, I think it's over 100, we are campaigning to put an essentials guarantee into legislation. So that would be a legislation that says universal credit would always at least cover the cost of essentials. And we set up an independent body which would assess what that level was. And you can then set benefits with reference to that. Now, that is one of those things which would be transformative across the whole system. So we wouldn't just be arguing about this little tweak there and that little tweak there. We'd be saying, as a society, 
we're going to commit to each other that we're going to make sure that everyone can afford the essentials. And that's protection we can all rely on. Now, we have got a campaign on that. We have a petition. So if people want to help, go on our website and you can sign the petition. You can write to your MP. And we, it's interesting, we're getting a lot of support from across the political spectrum. So quite a lot of MPs, politicians, just people in the communities where our food banks are going out talking to people. Mm. This sense that that would be this one, one of the things we're talking about, a fundamental change to a system which would then just radically transform the lives of so many people. Ellen, thank you thank so you much so for your time. Much. Oh, thank you. It's been lovely. Pod Save the UK is brought to you by even the royals on Wondery. When you take a closer look at what it means to be royalty, you'll see that it comes at the expense of everything else, like your freedom, your privacy, and sometimes even your head. On Wondery's new podcast, Even the Royals, they pull back the curtain on royal families, past and present, from all over the world. And you can listen for free wherever you get your podcasts. From one of the most infamous royals in history, Marie Antoinette, but everything you know about her is wrong. Or Catherine de' Medici. History branded her as a cold and power-obsessed manipulator, saying she was responsible for one of the most devastating massacres in French history. But she was an orphan who spent her life as a powerless hostage, and her determination to rise to power led her to some dark places and some desperate measures. Follow Even the Royals on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge Even the Royals ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Clover gives you the power to run a smarter, faster restaurant. See everything in real time with the kitchen display system. Streamline takeout and delivery with online ordering. With the right tech, quick service is getting even quicker. Clover, accept payments, run your business, and sell more. For a limited time only, visit Clover.com to get a $450 statement credit on qualified hardware purchases. That's www.clover.com. Sonish, who is your villain of the week? Well, Coco, this is something we actually talked a little bit about with Helen Barnard, but on the question of what this Tory government thinks of disabled people, my villain is Chief Secretary to the Treasury, Laura Trott, who was previewing their plans earlier this week. Just for the background, Rishi Sunak has called the current UK welfare system unsustainable and has pledged to clamp down on supposed uh, welfare fraud. So in a move to change that, a new plan has been floated where people with mobility and mental health problems will be asked to work from home or they'll lose their benefits. And that means hundreds of thousands of people will be told to look for work that they can do from home. If they can't, they face having their benefits cut by nearly £5,000 a year. Now, Laura Trott was actually asked about this policy on Sky News this week, and here's what she said. I think that if you can work as a principle, you should work, and that is what the government believes. That's been the thrust of all of our policies. Of course, there should be support for people uh, to help them into work or to help them with issues that they're facing. But ultimately, there is a duty on citizens that if they are able to go out to work, that's what they should do. James Taylor from the disability charity Scope said it will be deeply damaging to force disabled people to look for work when they aren't well enough. It is absurd to even suggest that people who are unwell have a duty to work through it. And uh, Isla Osman from the anti-poverty charity Z2K said there is no evidence to support the idea that there are fully remote jobs available that are suitable for these groups. Um, it's an absurd policy in any case, especially given that the government has spent the last few years explaining how terrible working from home is and how everyone should go into the office and how we need to salvage Pret-a-Manger <laughs> by going in. So already there's a dissonance at play here, given what they've been telling us since the you know end of the pandemic. The thing that I always want to ask these people is, do you honestly think that these people don't want to work? Yeah. Why... why, why are people on benefits routinely dehumanised? Maybe the whole point of this is just to wind people like me up. You know, it's you know, it's it, it's a government that essentially has abandoned meaningful policy shifts and is simply governing by owning the libs. You know, I think that it, it, it's a kind of troll government that has nothing to offer except things that are designed to wind me up. So, am I playing into their hands with this, or should we all? still retain a basic sense of human morality 
uh, and consider that the benefit system is actually there for a reason and not everybody on benefits is desperately trying to scam you. Yeah, exactly. But they, I mean, there's been a long history of like demonising the poor, but also demonising those who are ill. And normally, I I don't know... It would be wrong to rank which one is more effective. Traditionally, they would go migrants. Every problem is the migrants. Well, they've got, but they've got so much. They're, they're really covering that base already. <laughs> but they can't cover the base of the migrants because they are not bringing the numbers down. Yeah. So they can't really keep going on that. So I honestly think they just have some sort of horrible hat where they put vulnerable groups in. They're like, who should we get? Who should we get? Who should we scapegoat today? And they've just once again been like, oh, yes, I forgot. There's many people who are quite unwell because there was a massive pandemic. Excellent. Yeah, let's go for them. It's really opportunistic and it is gross. Um, before we jump to your hero of the week, Coco, we've had a, a lot of listener reaction to last week when you highlighted the work of foster parents across the UK. On YouTube, Chris Palmer 7893 said, fabulous pick for hero. We adopted our two boys. And whilst it's not always been easy, it was made infinitely easier by them having been under the care of excellent, highly experienced foster parents before they came to us. This was some years ago. And I remember the foster parents telling us that whilst they loved our two, they were looking forward to a little time off from fostering just to replenish their mm. batteries. Less than a week later, they had three little girls under their care because their need was so great and they couldn't bring themselves to refuse to have them. Heroes indeed, as I'm sure what by now is probably well over 30 wow. children that they have fostered. Absolutely incredible. Wow. What incredible What incredible message from Chris and what an incredible thing he and uh, yeah. those foster parents have been doing. It's been interesting, actually, because of all the heroes, this was probably the one I had the most response to. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's sort of really hard on my view that this needs to be much higher up on the political agenda. So who's your hero for this week? So my hero for this week is the campaign group Stop MSG Sphere London. Their work has stopped the development of a... A giant sphere, that's what it is, in Stratford, East London. I live near there, so I've been following this quite closely. Yeah. Okay, so... It is a big sphere. It, it looks bananas. <laughs> it looks bananas. Inside the sphere is a state-of-the-art uh, live event space, you know, for sporting events, for music concerts. No one's denying that inside it's, you know, kind of cool. But the main thing that's controversial about it is that the outside of this giant glowing sphere is, uh, yeah, just hundreds of LED screens projecting advertisements all day and all night. Well, certainly the one in Las Vegas is 24 hours a day. It's yeah. just on the strip. So you can kind of imagine it, right? Yeah, yeah. So Madison Square Gardens, MSG, they wanted to build it in Stratford, but there was lots of resistance from the local residents. Mainly, quite understandably, they said, well, we're not going to be able to sleep with this thing. Forget the roads for now. I mean, I, people need to sleep. Yeah. And Madison Square Gardens company is run by a guy called James Dolan. He was a Trump donor. Just saying. Does that seem like a cool guy? But I think it's fine to say okay. he seems like an absolute piece of shit, but <laughs> I think that's fine to say. Okay, uh, well... It, it is my personal opinion <laughs> that if you donate to Donald Trump, you are a piece of shit. I I'm not claiming it as fact. Okay, but let's just be clear that we say allegedly piece of shit. <laughs> I don't want to get sued. Anyway, so the... Madison Square Gardens had the audacity to return to these residents who had concerns about the light pollution and said, all right, we'll get you blackout blinds. How rude is that? And finally, the campaign reached London Mayor Sadiq Khan, who this week has rejected the planning application. Here's Lindsay Mace, who's part of Stop MSG Sphere London, giving her response to that news. I mean, obviously, we're over the moon. It's been nearly six years that local residents have dealt with the, the stress and uncertainty of whether this deeply damaging development would be built right next to their homes. There is talk about Michael Gove intervening, that yeah. he might actually allow it, but Madison Square Gardens are very, very salty about this decision. They've already given a presser where they've said, we're going then, fine, bye. You snooze, you lose. We're going to go to, and I quote, more forward-thinking countries. Um, Just look. say Dubai. We all know you mean Dubai. <laughs> If anyone's going to let you build a massive glowing orb that, based on some of the artwork I saw, only advertises the Trolls movie. <laughs> yeah, no, it is weird because they keep saying, like, this is, the, this is the future of live events. This is the future of buildings. And then you look at 
the geniuses involved with designing the displays. And it was like, oh, on Halloween we did a big pumpkin. Yeah. <laughs> At Christmas we did a Christmas orb. When it was a sports match, we made it into a basketball. I'm like, all right, guys, it's round things. You're going to do round things? Yeah. Like, I don't know how edgy it is. I mean, look, you know, Las Vegas, no shade to Las Vegas. I'm sure we have some listeners based in Nevada. <laughs> but... People don't live on the Strip. People yeah. live in Stratford. And I think there is a question here about who cities are actually for. Right. So fair play to these residents. They worked really hard. They all got together. The The group knocked on hundreds of doors um, and they, they gathered, uh, you know, support from uh, from local councillors. The local green councillor was very uh, integral. Um, and ultimately, you know, Sadiq Khan... He 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 called it, and you have to give him credit where credit's due. That's yeah. a lot of money. Uh, that was a lot of investment into the city, and which he denied because fundamentally, people have a right to live happily and healthily in the city that they choose to call home. So. Anyway, also, I just want to mention this sphere was going to be in Newham. Newham is one of the most economically deprived areas of London. I'll tell you what, though, they wouldn't do it in Chipping Norton, would they? <laughs> They're all like, oh, we need this. The country needs this. All right, then, do it somewhere else, <laughs> which they wouldn't. Um, but yes, these uh, these guys got together and I think they really forced the politicians to, and just the wider world, the wider establishment, if you will, to sort of say, okay, actually, let's think about our priorities. We don't really want this. Who is this for? So fair play. To them. I I am personally and professionally interested in there being uh, more performance spaces. Oh, you in want London. your face three hundred and sixty? But I, yeah, but I just <laughs> the thing that I always think about a lot of the best venues is you know when I think about what makes them good, it tends to be you know the acoustics, the sight lines. I'm never in a venue and I think you know how why this would be better if it was constantly burning the retinas of people <laughs> outside the venue. You do, you're not just like, oh, I just wish this was £10 a pint. <laughs> and I really wish that when I queue for my coat, the security guards are oh, just rude for no reason. I really want to get talked down to. But anyway, we've got enough of those places in London. So shout out to the Stop MSG Sphere London group. You did it, guys. You actually did it. So well done to them. Um, you can get in touch with us uh, and we love to hear from you uh, by emailing psuk at reducedlistening.co.uk. We also love to hear your voices, so do send us a voice note on WhatsApp. Our number is 07514644572. Internationally, that's plus 447514644572. You can always nominate your own heroes and villains. Just email us at psuk at reducedlistening.co.uk. Podsafe the UK is a reduced listing production for Crooked Media. Thanks to senior producer Michael Brow and digital producer Alex Bishop. Video editing was by David Kaplovitz and the music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thanks to our engineer Alex Bennett. The executive producers are Anishka Sharma, Dan Jackson and Madeline Herringer with additional production support from Ari Schwartz. Watch us on the Pod Save the World YouTube channel. Follow us on Twitter and TikTok where we're at Pod Save the UK or Pod Save the UK on Instagram. And hit subscribe for new shows on Thursdays on Spotify, Amazon or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.